Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal. Each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices in a very casual and informal way. This is not a webinar or lecture, rather our goal is to talk about key topics and challenges in a very informal way and share best practices. I'm your host Naveen Agarwal and I'm the principal and founder at Achieve where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. In this episode, I'm joined by Sarah Vazda to talk about how early clinical input in the design and development process can help us optimize our design, improve patient safety, and accelerate innovation so we reach the market faster. Sarah has a lot of experience working in the startup space, advising clients, on introducing clinical input early in the design and development phase for success. We talked about this topic in front of a live audience as part of a LinkedIn audio event. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Guys, today we're going to talk about why it is important to include clinical input very early in the design and development space. Why it is important what advantages we get, and what are the problems if we don't do it. Uh, Sarah has a lot of experience in this field, and I would love to have her share uh, the insights that she has gathered over uh, this time frame. Uh, but first, I, I want to invite Sarah to quickly introduce herself to you, uh, and then we will get going with our topic. So, Sarah, welcome again, and thank you for joining today. Hi, Dr. Naveen. Uh, thank you for having me. Um yeah, so I'm really looking forward to be, you know, discussing the value of clinical input in, you know, early design and development and really like throughout the product life cycle. So it's going to be really good. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, Sarah, how did you get interested in this topic? Why, why do you think it's important? Yes. So um, in fact, in order to kind of get a deeper understanding of why I chose today's topic, I guess it's worth kind of mentioning some lines about my background. Perfect. Yes. So I'm a registered or licensed biomedical scientist, and I'm a specialist in laboratory medicine and diagnostic methods. So I've been working in, you know, private and public hospitals and with patient safety since, you know, beginning of my kind of career in 2007. And one area of responsibility that I had working clinically was to validate new methods. <laughs> and I remember one case in particular with a specific instrument um, I had to assess. And this was kind of a matter of should the hospital or the department purchase it or not. Uh -huh. And I really had kind of one simple standard. The instrument uh, should be as good as or better than me. But I didn't expect the instrument to replace me or replace my competence. Uh -huh. So I kind of have this line, you know, with me at all times. And because, you know, healthcare innovation, it is needed. And we do need technology to support our clinical work. But what we don't need is this extra burden. And I will kind of get back to, you know, <laughs> extra burden and having clinical input early in, in product development. Anyway, so I, this kind of made me curious. I wanted to understand, you know, why devices become so far to almost reach the market, but they don't go all the way in terms of like adoption <laughs> by, for example, healthcare professionals, et cetera. So in between the hospital and the industry, I did some work in academia uh, with clinical studies. 
And in one such study, we actually evaluated a new medical device. And then it was under the directives of medical devices and not the regulation as it is today. Uh-huh. And even there, it was kind of clear to me that the clinical competence or the input, you know, clinical input to the product development was really not natural part of design and development. <laughs> so to me, it looked like this was something company just ticked off kind of in the end. And of course, there are consequences of doing so. For example, poor quality and design, you know, poor usability and user interface. And it kind of takes time to reach the market because of, you know, all the rework that needs to be done. Uh, and therefore, it will also be costly. So it was clear to me what I wanted to do. And I, you know, the unmet need in the industry was evident. So it's basically securing the in-house clinical competence in startups. So uh-huh. that's where I come in. So and is that is that something you do uh, right now in your business? It is. Uh, I do. Um, so implementing kind of clinical uh, impact, like input or feedback loop in companies. Uh, so we're looking at that as well, you know, all from idea to to concept, um, to prototype, etc. Yeah. And so it seems to me that really before, uh, it's almost like a, a subject for requirements gathering, right? We should have a complete set of requirements before we get to develop the product. And what I'm hearing you say is that sometimes we are missing some of the very critical requirements that, meant, that might help us for adoption with our clinical staff. Is that what I'm hearing you say here? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it all goes back to the purpose of the device and understanding its clinical application. <laughs> and depending on the team that's working with you know, product development, of course, there's a different outcome and different focus when it comes to setting requirements. <laughs> but it all goes back to understanding how their product is going to be used. And I must say, it's not always um, the case for for startups because they're focusing so much on the technology part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the benefits we can have, uh, Sarah? I know you um, talked about a couple of items when we were just um, connected uh, 15 minutes ago. Uh, can you share share with us some of the key benefits of clinical input early in the design and development process? Yes. So there are, of course, many benefits to do so, but I'm going to highlight three of those. Uh-huh. And the first one is, of course, to optimize the design. Uh-huh. And, you know, having clinical input doesn't necessarily mean to have a doctor because, of course, it will cost the company to hire, you know, doctors to get that input. But, and without, besides that, it also takes time to build this relationship between, you know, a, a manufacturer industry and healthcare professionals. So really, when we say clinical input, it can come from, you know, subject expert matters, mm-hmm. as we say, SMEs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, SMEs. And yeah. And so again, it depends again on the product, its intended purpose, how it's going to be applied, etc. But receiving insights into how the product will be used in real setting will allow for design improvements. Yeah. Which means that, you know, the company needs to have an iterative development approach. So kind of incorporating feedback and making adjustments as the product evolves, that's very important in, in optimizing a design. Yeah. The second one uh, is risk mitigation. And I know uh, we talked about emphasizing, of course, patient safety, because that's really what, what it is all about. Uh-huh. So having early clinical input can, of course, help to identify and you know address safety and usability concerns, really, uh, before they actually become a major issue. 
Yeah. Um, and it can also contribute to reducing risks. Um, and, you know, while on the market, also adverse events and recalls, et cetera. So that's why it's very important to to have the clinical input in order to understand its use and hence, you know, mitigate the risks. And yeah. also increase patient safety, of course. Yeah. And then the third one is time and cost savings because addressing issues early will, of course, reduce the need for major design changes later on in the development process. Uh-huh. And therefore, it will also save time and resources. But mostly, it will kind of speed, as we talked about, uh, the product to market. Yeah. And that, that has an effect. That is an effect not only on the cost of development, but also getting new product revenue earlier. That, that's correct. Yes, I would agree with that because let's say that you're developing a, a product where perhaps you don't have the clinical input that it really requires and then you put the device on the market and it turns out that, no, you get a lot of complaints. Uh-huh. And in the complaints, when you study them, you can see that most of them is about the clinical application or usability aspects, etc., uh-huh. which eventually will lead the company to do some rework yeah and then again you need to so you, you can't focus on other you know product line development so yeah so you know it it makes a lot of sense and i i have a feeling that intuitively our colleagues in the industry actually understand this and i also believe that executive leadership who is responsible for making decisions and providing resources i think everyone intuitively gets the idea so I'm curious to hear your view on this uh, question I have is that why then is there a gap today? And first of all, is that a correct impression that I have? I, I think there's a gap. But if, if you agree with that, uh, could you share some of the barriers that we have today in our industry to including this clinical input early on? Yeah, um, I, I partially agree with that, Dr. Naveen, because I guess it's not always so that the management or the organization is aware that they need that type of competence at that time. Um, I think that it it also depends. I've been in situations, I will come to the barriers, but I've been in situations where I've seen, you know, companies or startups founded by, um, let's say that engineers or Uh a lot of tech focus Uh because we're in the tech industry, right? Uh So when it comes to risk analysis or risk activities or developing the device, they kind of lack the clinical competence. Uh It could be the other way around. It could be startups and companies founded by healthcare professionals. Uh-huh. And when you look at their risk analysis or a risk activities, it's, it's focusing more on the clinical kind of outcome uh-huh. uh, and effect rather than the technical uh, development. And they go away from the intended purpose, which is not correct either. So there's a balance between, you know, the technical part, the clinical part, and I would also say the regulatory part. Some of the barriers, which I think is really um, what we can, what I've seen mostly, is really about the knowledge. <laughs> I think that that's lacking uh, to understand what resources are required to have, you know, a, a product that can easily be adopted once it if it's CMR marked or you know put on the market. Um, and besides that, I would say planning. It's not enough, you know, planning from the management because it things, you know, they cost, it takes time and they don't focus on the right thing at the right right time, which can lead to those kind of barriers. And, you know, I'm also I'm also thinking here just at the top of my head here is like 
in a startup, there's a lot of passion in the team. Like they're very fascinated by the idea and they want to drive it forward. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that gives them tunnel vision. And sometimes yeah. they don't want to hear an alternate perspective or a risk that might be there. And yeah. I think it is also important for us to have a culture of open communication and collaboration. And we have talked about these topics. Uh, I know Becky is in the audience today. We have talked about that in the past. Uh, in a startup, how do we promote this kind of a risk-based thinking and open communication and collaboration? I think that's a skill that risk practitioners like us will have to develop over time if you want to advise uh, our companies for success. Uh, so it, it brings a good point, right? Because if there are clinicians who are launching a, a product or engineers who are launching a product, they are so passionate and focused and they have a tunnel vision. Uh, would you agree with that? Actually, I, I do, 100%. I would say it's kind of funny you say that because I always say, okay, cool ideas win awards and clinically, in brackets, needed ideas win the market. <laughs> yes. So, you know, and so in a way, adopting early clinical engineering or whatever you want to call it will increase adoption. And this is really what I what I say. I always because I've been through all the you know phases of idea to actually develop the product into different concepts, ideas, you know, prototypes in mark and on the market. So uh-huh. I've been in all these phases. And what is this in the steps that comes after that? And so far, that kind of approach and strategy works with startups because, um, you know, I bring, I guess I bring in the knowledge of besides regular, I've been through the journey before. Yeah. So I share my experience, you know, new entrepreneurs in the industry. Do you, do you have any advice for um, colleagues in the audience who might be in a similar role as you are advising startups or working at startups in a quality regulatory risk management role. Do you have any advice on how to actually approach this in a way that doesn't sound like we are trying to slow things down? Yeah, I think, um, well, what has helped me, of course, is my, I guess, background and experience, uh, like industry experience. I've been working in this field for so long, so many years now. (laughs) And so I build, I work with trust. And I think building that relationship um, with, you know, the startups that you're working with is very important because they will also listen to you. But in general, I think um, it's it's a, it's a skill of con- convincing them mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. um, but not to be, because, you know, you're, the regulations are there to help you. And mm-hmm. uh, I've seen many examples saying that, oh, it's just, um, uh, you know, it takes so much, so longer time to reach the markets because of the recognition. It's actually the other way around. Uh-huh. You understand the, the requirements and kind of impl- and, and kind of implement that uh-huh. uh, in the company. That time will not be that long. It will actually be faster because let's say you have a product that needs to have an external uh, reviewer or, or auditing, for example, not just like body in my world. If you can kind of tick all the requirements there and they also focus on the clinical evidence and uh-huh. input as well you will reach the market but if you haven't done your homework homework you will have the stop right there so you have to redo the work ah. so again it's about understanding the whole process and we have to frame this argument in the context of our business objective right and that's where yeah. the, the the whole point of uh, risk comes into play not from a regulatory point of view 
but from the point of view of achieving our business objective. And if we can position this as a argument for mitigating that business risk. And, you know, sometimes I, I think that uh, startups or even early stage companies, they have a big focus on making sure they have enough funding. And we have yeah. talked about uh, this topic of maybe not being able to get funding because we have not looked at the business risks or regulatory risks in a right context. So as practitioners, I think if we are aware of our role beyond just helping our companies be ready for, let's say, a notified body audit or uh, creating a FDA submission, I think if we can be aware of our role, be more than that, I think we can make a lot more impact. So uh, with that, guys, I think I'm going to open the floor for conversation with you. I know, Rajat, you are already requesting to speak, so I'm going to bring you on stage. But guys, let me quickly tell you how it works. Uh, you will find next to, actually, at the at the bottom uh, right of your screen, I think you will find a way to request uh, to speak. And raise your hand. I will bring you on the on stage here. Don't wait for your turn. I will bring as many people as we can because we won't have a very rich conversation. So, Rajat, with that, I want to invite you to unmute your mic and please share what you have in mind. Yeah, thank you, Naveen and Sarah. Uh, very, you know, insightful conversation. Uh, I'm an aerospace engineer, and I've just recently gotten interested in life support system design. So the idea of medical devices and clinical research to me is where uh, the potential like research for humans lie. So it's a very human-centric research for me. And as I was trying to think of like the risk assessment, uh, I had a conversation with Naveen yesterday about this. So uh, yeah, <laughs> Naveen kind of has been guiding me. So I think you guys brought up the idea of like following the regulations up to a point. And I wanted to kind of bring this idea that um, like I work in a space where the, the regulations might not even be defined maybe <laughs> so how do I start with like quantifying and like is there qualitative and quantitative methods of risk in clinical research that I can kind of get started with and basically I'll have to start with some standards that already exist but possibly extrapolating it into the space environment I guess right Sarah do you have any uh, any thoughts to share on that yeah, uh, outside. And <laughs> yes. So, of course, it goes back to what we discussed regarding, you know, business objectives and looking at kind of what market do we see as a potential market for for the device. And I guess in your in your case, um, it's it's uh, the right approach. There is to look at what kind of device is it that you are building and developing, and what standard requirements do you have on that de device. So that's a good start. Um, then again, I still want to emphasize what is the intended purpose uh, yeah. of your device. You don't need to go to MDR or regulations to look at that. And uh, this is what you define for your own product, and then take it from there. And and again, yeah. And I think what I would say is that we don't have to wait for standards to develop, right? At the common sense approach is we need to learn how the device is going to be used, what will be the environment, who the users are. I think that's what, Sarah, I heard you say when it comes to clinical input. Uh, the word is a little bit broad. The understanding of how the device will be used and environment would help us develop uh, the functional and safety requirements. I think that's a key message here, Rajat. We don't have to wait for standards to develop, but um, at the end of the day, to me, it's kind of common sense. Uh, okay, so Roger, please go ahead and unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. 
uh, yeah, Naveen. So the idea is that we set the standards as we build it. So we will be like the iterative design where yeah. whatever we create the feasibility point, that will be the standard until the standard evolves, right? So my point is, uh, yeah, I think the regulations will also have to kind of conform around it. Yeah. But probably in my head, that's why I asked, like, what yeah, are no. the qualitative and quantitative methods of risk associated with clinical research? That's I probably where I will end it. Thank you. Thank you, Rajat. I appreciate that. Rajat, go ahead, please. Uh, was that to me, Dr. Navi? No, no, I think that? it's just a comment that Rajat is sharing with us I, that, hey, uh, we'll have to do this both. Okay, Rajat, you're oh. welcome. <laughs> Go ahead, please. I'm I'm always clicking the wrong mute button that shows on the screen. <laughs> no, okay, no problem. Okay, so uh, this is kind of a comment and answer to something you brought up, uh, Naveen, uh, about how companies can maybe get better focused with the uh, how their product is going to be adopted. One of my most satisfying jobs was with a company that was that truly hired, they called them product managers. They were kind of a, a maybe a mix between a market, senior marketing and sales position, but their primarily primary role was responsibility for how that product was adopted uh -huh. in the marketplace. They spent a lot of time with a lot of customers and sometimes dragging senior engineers on the road with them. Uh -huh. And the the point was they were thinking about the product, how it worked in the field, how it worked for clinicians, what needed to go into the next revisions, where it was going five years uh, from now. And I think uh, that was a it was a great work environment for for an engineer on the development team. And uh, and I unfortunately that company got bought by another company with a different philosophy. <laughs> uh, those those folks were gone and. Uh, uh, I think it was it was terrible for the company. Now I know for startups, this might seem like a pretty heavy burden, uh, but to Sarah's point, I think to to focus on how your product is really going to be used, that innate knowledge of how it's going to be used in the field is is so so key. So I just uh, applauding what Sarah is saying and and saying that was an experience I had in my past that worked very well for the company. Thank you, Roger, for sharing that. And what, what I'm hearing you say is that a lot depends upon how the company is organized and what roles are there. So, um, guys, hang in there. I want to welcome Laurie Ann here. Laurie, thanks for, Laurie Ann, thanks for joining. And uh, please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Yes, I'm a quality systems uh, professional. I've been, in the, I've been in the game for quite a while. I have a question, and thank you for this presentation. I just wanted to clarity. I have two questions. When you say clinical at early phase of design development, I just wanted to get clarity on what stage you're uh, referring to, because I'm typically the design validation stage is where I've seen a lot of clinical studies done. And then secondly, my second part of my question is the FDA, you know, released guidelines on uh, requirements for um, clinical studies to have to be done with based on the demographics of where the product will be launched uh -huh. to make sure that these these uh, devices are equitable and not just for a specific type of population. What is your take on are people are companies actually doing this, making sure that they're building equity in their medical device development? Or are those guidances just out there, you know, in the ether <laughs> because oh, it's not regulation? That's such a great question. Uh, Sarah, I would love to hear your thoughts on it that. It is. 
Yes, it is. Um, thank you for, for the question. <clears throat> I think start off, I just want to um, clarify when we talk about clinical input. Uh, and it also goes back to what you were referring to, Lorianne, which, which stage are we at in terms of development? So there are different ways of, of getting that clinical input. It's not always and necessarily a clinical study or a clinical investigation. You can get that clinical input by just having, I mean, it's, it's like the usability work. You get um, a focus group by the actual intended users, if that's healthcare professional or others. And there you get that clinical understanding of how your product will be used. So that's one way. And um, <clears throat> when it comes to clinical studies, I would say you have to have developed your product to that level that you kind of use the clinical study to verify and validate your product rather to get that, you know, input to do design changes. I would see that more as, okay, we haven't done our homework. It's a, you know, poor clinical development of a product. We need to redo it. That's kind of a, kind of a risk mitigation, I would say, a risk control thing in the end. So when I talk about clinical input, I mean quite early in, in design and development. So when you're designing your uh, device, you kind of have this um, established the clinical requirement, the clinical application, so you know how, how it will be used and how you want it to be used by clinicians. And I think on that, on that note, though, I would say the second part of Lorian's question about uh, thinking about equity, equity. right? Because it's a matter exactly. of requirements so, gathering, right? Can yeah. you? I, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on that because if you don't design our product for the target demographic, which may be very diverse, that could be an yeah, issue. Yeah, and it is. And for me, um, when it comes, you know, because as a, as a uh, working in hospitals and with patient safety, to me, when it comes to, I, I mean, I don't see different I know their demographics of course but for me patient is patient uh-huh. regardless of the market uh-huh. so when I say clinical input into a device I think of all the patients but I know there are some requirements in terms of you know post-market clinical data and you have if you want to enter the U.S. market you have to probably do a validation study with the U.S. population because there are some of course I guess differences but in terms of patient safety and having a device, because the device is the same, regardless of what the patient group is in terms of demographics. So it's about developing a clinically safe device. Yes, and yes. And verify it. Yeah. And just to add to that, Sarah, then I think the other half of the equation would be effectiveness too. So if we have clinical input early, understanding the way the device is going to be used by who, their unique needs, we can balance both. So guys, as you can see, this is really a very pretty interesting conversation. I would continue to invite you to share your thoughts. And again, as you can see, this doesn't have to be a question. It can be an insight that you have you would like to share with the rest of the group. Uh, what is your experience about uh, being able to include clinical input early in the design and development, uh, positive or negative? I think we would love to hear from that. So I'm going to invite Andy and David who have requested to speak. David, uh, I- uh, Andy, you are on. So go ahead. Please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Uh, uh, brilliant. Uh, really, really good um, session this week. It's uh, it's really good to hear. And great to see the size of the group being so big. Um, I just really wanted to be really quick. I work in the automotive sector. And um, I cannot recommend highly enough 
uh, including all kinds of feedback as early as possible. Um, as some of you might know, I'm a big fan of uh, iterative development and, and closing the gap between um, specifying and validating. And, uh, and I think if you can get whatever, whatever expertise you can get, whatever ideas and feedback, uh, good feedback you can get in as early as possible, never turn that away, embrace it and bring it into your project as soon as you can. Um, it's your friend. Yes. Uh, the sooner you know it, the sooner you can work on it. Thank you, Andy. David, go ahead. We have uh, just a minute left. Uh, so go ahead, please ask your question. I'll be quick. Thank you. This is a great conversation. This is maybe taken off a little bit on Andy's comment. But I'm curious, Sarah, can you talk a little bit more about how incorporating not just design, you know, um, clinical input, but any kind of um, risk type input early in the design process can actually help with our regulations and compliance and also with how is it compatible with current formal methods that are being used? How might it be different? Yes. Um, I guess it goes back to what Dr. Naveen said about the mindset of the organization to have a risk-based approach in basically everything we do. Doesn't necessarily mean more, you know, burden of work or paperwork. It's just about <clears throat> understanding um, the requirements and, and everything around it. So when it comes to um, the risk activities or the risk management, um, I would say work with that in terms of a mindset. It's not something that you just, again, need to tick, you need to tick off because you have a standard thing so or you have legal requirements saying so. Um, and the way to do that is um, it's, it's, it's a cross-functional team. I would say, uh, yeah. get input not only from, you know, customers, potential users, but also inside the organization, the in-house competence, because eventually the product will still, you know, it will be, it will go through the different, I guess, departments and teams. So get that input. So if you're working with, let's say your job is risk analysis or risk management, get that input for someone working with the regulatory part or working with marketing, for example, because they will handle the product anyway and get that input early will obviously help to develop something that will be, you know, hopefully quickly adopted by mm -hmm. uh, potential users. That's awesome, Sarah. I think what I would say is as risk practitioner then, I think the, the maximum value we can bring is being aware of the gap and raising our hand and bringing it to attention uh, by people who can help us. So, I know, guys, we are running out of time, and I never say no to someone who raises their hand even at the last moment. So, Kiran, you are on. Please go ahead and uh, share what you have in mind. Thanks, Naveen. Um, Sarah, I was just interested in your thoughts on um, the importance of separating the what does a system need to do from how should it do it. Very interesting, Sarah. You have any thoughts on that? What what was the what was the uh, let me again? rephrase that uh, I think Kieran is asking separating is there any value in separating the what a system needs to do versus how yeah. it gets done yeah yeah so for example let's say the clinician or if I'm gonna give some kind of feedback it's always um, helpful to have the um, what already there then I can use my competence and expertise to kind of get input on the how. 
So if we're going to use, I don't know, let's say um, the typical waterfall uh, method in, in design and development, I would see, <laughs> I'm sorry, <clears throat> I would have the technical uh, requirements as, you know, like what is the device? Um, I would have that first and then understand, the, you know, the application. They kind of go separate, but again, even the how can have an input to the what, because what we yes. developed from the big, you know, so yes. it, it's kind of iterative. It's it's agile. iterative. It doesn't necessarily have, it is. So um, it's not like the work ends when we create the what, but the what is needed to understand the how. And and the faster we do it in an agile form, uh, yeah. the better we would be. So do it quickly, do it fast, and keep improving. Guys, uh, as always, you know, we are running out of time. This can go yeah. for a long time, and I'm very respectful of your time. I'm going to give Sarah just one minute to think about some key points that you can take away with. But in the meantime, I'm going to share with you just a few housekeeping announcements. Uh, every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern, we meet. So you don't have to wait for an invitation. You don't have to register. Just mark it on your calendar if you're interested. And if you miss one of these sessions, a recording will be available on my Let's Talk Risk newsletter. The link to that newsletter is in the comment section of this event. And finally, I want to invite all of you in the audience to raise your hand and, and contact me if you want to be a guest. Because all of you, I believe, ex without exception, has insights and experiences to share that we can all benefit from. That's the purpose of these conversations. Sarah, with that, I want to invite you to leave us with uh, one or two points that we should walk away with from this conversation. Yes, of course. Uh, Dr. Amin, first, before I do that, um, there is one thing that I really need to address. I hope it's okay if I can. Sure, go ahead, please. Do that. Sure. It goes back to, I guess, uh, Lorian's second part when it comes to design validation and, you know, equity and patient safety and, and different markets. Of course, what I, what I want to see when I look at validation of, you know, products, it's important to make sure that you're validating using a representative of the patient population. So it's not only about healthcare, you know, healthcare professionals, whether it's in the U.S. market or in the in Europe. If it's about patient safety, uh -huh. it's, about, it's about making sure that when you validate your product, you have a representation of patients, not only one certain group. Uh -huh. So that's very important. So, yeah. With that said, my, my final message or, or key takeaway is that early clinical input in design and development of, you know, medical devices, because it is medical devices and we are working with patients, it's important because it helps to identify, you know, potential issue early in the process. Uh -huh. It can improve the product functionality and of course, you know, the clinical application. And most importantly, it will enhance the patient safety before it's fully developed. So it's important to find, you know, again, the balance between this and the technical aspects. We talk about the what and how and yeah. just a minute ago. Yeah. And, you know, the regulatory compliance to reach the market faster. Wow. We have so yeah. many nuggets of wisdom in this conversation. Uh, I think it will be a pretty interesting challenge for me to summarize this. As you guys know, I present a summary mm -hmm. and a recording in an article so you can subscribe to the newsletter and go there. So I will be working hard for that. But guys, I want to thank all of you. Thank you for your patience. We are five minutes over. Uh, but I hope you're enjoying these conversations. Reach out to me with any comments for feedback and suggestions for improvement. I'm always, always willing to improve. Thanks. With that, thank you again. Thanks, everybody. Have a good weekend. And we will see you again next Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.